Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. My understanding is that a major component of practicing Buddhism is relational, is about community and building relationships with other people who are also practicing, trying to walk this path. It's not meant to be done alone. You're not meant to be the only person you know that meditates. it's very intentional. Many, many of the Buddha's direct teachings and ways that he set up community was in service of <clears throat> us connecting with each other. Um, one of the reasons why for the first couple of hundred years, um, many reasons, but that actually the Buddha's teachings weren't written down and that there's some sense that the Buddha's teachings were never meant to be written down. We're not supposed to be reading Buddhist books. I'm not supposed to be writing Buddhist books. <laughs> because it's too easy to isolate when you have a book by yourself you know like of course reading education amazing like in spiritual inspiration from books like so many of us would say like i'm here actually because i read a book and a book brought me to like trying this thing um but one of the reasons why it was supposed to uh, what's called an oral tradition is the teachings are supposed to be passed on from person to person supposed to be communicated with each other supposed to gather together to to discuss and practice and support each other in this practice community is core component uh whether it's community uh, virtually at home on zoom and everybody seeing each other in the little boxes or it's actually being in the room together so if that makes sense it's one of the reasons why last week somebody reminded me that i hadn't been having people introduce each ourselves to each other and how important it is not to just get into this like i come meditate i listen i leave but actually i'm trying to also connect with people and and it's weird right it's fucking weird to as adults to make friends with new people it's weird <laughs> you know it's like hi i'm a meditator will you be my <laughs> do you want to be my meditation friend it's, it's weird but <clears throat> if you attend regularly you get to know each other and go out to eat together after or before or you know kind of start start to build community All right, well, let's, uh, and then the other part is that it's not about just hanging out and talking about it, it's about practicing it. It's about uh, applying the core teachings of meditative uh, training, training our minds, training our hearts, uh, as we get together an opportunity to meditate together and to experience, to to, uh, penetrate the teachings through direct experience. So that it's not this, I read the books and I understand it, or I listened to it and I theoretically get Buddhism. Buddhism is to be digested, it's to be experienced, it's to, to, to be embodied. And we do that through meditation. Without meditation, fucking impossible to actually have wisdom. 
it's all just knowledge without meditation with meditation we can turn that knowledge the things that we know into direct reliable uh wisdom so that's why we always meditate together when we gather to find a way to sit that feels appropriate for your meditation tonight upright relaxed As you're ready, allow your eyes to be closed, making any necessary adjustments to the posture. And I encourage some level of relaxation, of softening, releasing tension, finding that upright posture that's relaxed. mindfulness the core transformative teaching of the buddha begins with the body present time non-judgmental kind awareness of your physical sensations your form Put some emphasis on the kindness with your awareness and attitude of accepting ourselves just as we are, this body, this heart, mind, our moods, our attitudes, our opinions, with kindness and acceptance. Right now, it's like this. Allow the breath to become the anchor of your attention, allowing everything else to be in the background. Breathing in, one knows 
the sensations that the breath creates as we breathe in, receiving it, investigating it, breathing out one knows. That's what's happening right now, right now. Exhale is happening and it feels like this. My nostrils, my chest, my belly. When the attention gets drawn to something else away from the breath, just acknowledge it with kind awareness, thinking, hearing, feeling other sensations in other parts of the body. <coughs> Gently come back to the breath over and over.
training our minds to pay attention, to be mindful, to see clearly. To see the impermanent, impersonal, unreliable nature of each moment is incredibly liberating, incredibly important. But equally important is the attitude that we bring to our experience, to our effort. Continue to bring the intention of kindness. It's so natural to become critical, that inner voice that judges, compares, criticizes, can start to run the show even in meditation. Keep replacing that with a simple friendly response. It's okay. I'm here paying attention best I can. Non-judgmental, friendly. Merciful attitude towards even that judging mind. The mind that draws you away from the breath over and over into its dramas and stories, fantasies and hopes. Yeah.
It said that mindfulness of the breath itself can lead to many liberating insights. When we bring curiosity, our full attention, the breath reveals the impermanent reality of all things. We sit in this body that breathes all by itself without your volition. Sometimes it feels like we're controlling the breath, like we certainly have some influence over the breath, but the body just breathes. revealing the impersonal, not-self reality of this human experience. We're taking our thoughts so personal, our emotions so personal, but just like the breath, it's just what the body does. It thinks, it feels, it breathes. As we begin to apply the second foundation, our perception of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, also the breath experienced as either pleasant or unpleasant or perhaps neutral, giving us more and more insight into our relationship to pleasure, our craving, clinging, attachment.
Right now it's like this, a mind that thinks, a body that breathes. Past and future memories and plans. Born into this process of craving and aversion. Self-centered, fear-based survival instinct. We're learning to break our addiction to pleasure, break our addiction to the mind. learning to sit here and be uncomfortable together, turning towards the pain rather than away from it, softening, relaxing into, it's just discomfort. It's okay to be uncomfortable.
for the last couple of minutes. Let go of the effort to be spiritual, to be present. Let your mind do whatever it's doing. Let your body feel whatever it's feeling. Shift your posture if you need to. Just soften into whatever's happening right now. My teacher, Ajahn Amaro, says the ideal experience is developing an unentangled participation. So we're not all entangled in our thoughts or our sensations. But we're also not detached. We're not observing from afar. It's not some witness. It's also a participation, unentangled participation with what's happening, bringing compassion to our pain, participation of letting go when we identify that we're attached, that we're clinging, that we're craving. There's an active engagement, a participation that's not so entangled in the content and the story the fears. I spent the um, the whole weekend, starting on Friday, moving, and um, kind of you know moved most of the stuff Friday. Started putting stuff away Saturday and Sunday, and then today I had to do some more moving, and um, it. Uh, 
is unpleasant. <laughs> and today, you know, of course, Mondays, knowing that I'm going to teach tonight, I kept asking my mind, what should I talk about tonight? Is there a topic? Is there something that's, you know, alive that I'm feeling, you know? And my mind kept saying, like, no, nothing. <laughs> Got nothing for you. <laughs> Go fucking break down those boxes. <laughs> um, so I don't have a, a topic tonight. I would just want to do a Q&A. And I, I have this great list. And there's all these great um, topics on this list. A few weeks ago, I asked the song. I said, what are some of the things? And even looking at the list, I'm like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> so I feel like actually what I'd like to do is uh, connect with actually what's alive for you in this moment, whether you're at home and you, what, you know, what questions about the meditation practice, about the process of awakening that we're in, uh, about the Buddhist teachings, um, experiences that you're having that I might be able to reflect on with you, or, you know, bigger questions about, uh, about the teachings. I feel like that's the only thing that's going to kind of pull me out is an, an actual direct uh, engagement with you, with the people like, and, and again, like this is, I, I started this a little bit earlier of like, this shit's not supposed to be notes. This is supposed to be a dialogue with each other, right? This is supposed to like all of the Buddha's teachings came out of conversations he was having with people. <laughs> and uh, th like, this is really the thing, like having the conversation together. Uh, I certainly don't have all the answers, but I've got lots of opinions and um, a, a pretty pretty good understanding of what the Buddha taught and how we can apply it. Please, Judy. Um, a lot of times in a guided meditation, you're talking about, you know, focus on the breath, and just like this time too, and then you say, you know, um, that there's insight, right? So sometimes I get a little muddy about, all right, I'm concentrating on the breath and yet I'm also looking for insight and wisdom. And some of that is about like letting your mind go to a place and being able to observe what it is you're thinking about, you know, and, and but in that state, like maybe having the wisdom about whatever the thing is, so, you know, talk about that, like how concentrating on the breath and going that way is, I think. Yep. Um, could you hear the question at home? Should I repeat it? A little bit. So uh, the, the question about this encouragement of, of uh, I think in the meditation, I said something like, uh, the Buddha said, like, we could have all of this insight, all of these liberating insights just from our mindfulness of the breath. But that, that uh, in practice, it kind of feels like, well, I'm either concentrating on my breath and just ignoring my mind and just breath, breath, breath. But then this kind of opens the door a little bit of like, oh, am I allowed to think about it and reflect on it? And, uh, and it can be confusing because that strict bare attention to I'm just breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in. And 
Um, so I get it, right? Because there and there's a place for that. Uh, there's a difference between concentration, and you can use the breath as an object of concentration. And there's not a lot of investigation. It's just bare attention, single pointed. It's um, an exclusive attention, right? I'm going to pay attention to this sensation of my breath and exclude everything else to the best of my ability. Ability. I'm going to ignore my mind. I'm going to ignore the sounds. And I'm just breath, breath, exclusive. That's my focus. Mindfulness, by definition, is a bit more inclusive. And so even though we say mindfulness of the breath, sometimes we are just concentrating on the breath. But what I was encouraging tonight was more mindfulness where it's, yeah, the breath, but there's also this whole body here. And of course, your mind, you're getting involved in your thoughts and you're hearing the sounds. And with the breath, rather than just in out, using the mind to reflect on the three characteristics to see, oh, there's impermanence. The, the breath is uh, arising and passing and all of the sensations are constantly changing. And so it's a, it is a more active, I think sometimes it's called an analytical meditation where you're, you're analyzing what's happening, not just in, out, but in changing, 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 pausing, out, changing, changing, changing. And you're really allowing your uh, awareness to receive that it's not just in, out, it's not that word, it's all of that flux of sensation, which leads to this like, oh, it, it's impermanent. I'm reflecting and, and focusing on the impermanence, which leads to this understanding that everything is impermanent, not just the breath. Every thought, every emotion, every experience that we have. Because in so many ways we're trying to, in the beginning of the practice, ignore our mind, it sets this uh, dilemma up for us where we think we're not supposed to think even about what's happening right now. But actually, part, and it's why I use the term investigation, because what's in, how are you investigating your experience? You're investigating with your mind. You're thinking about the breath coming and going. There's only, in mindfulness, there's only a prohibition on volitionally indulging in thoughts about the future and the past. You can think about the present all you want. What's happening right now? Let me reflect on it. Let me investigate it. What am I feeling? What is, is there anything constant? Is it all impermanent? Is it, um, you know, even that investigation of the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You're using your mind to ask these questions. You're thinking about the present moment. It's totally okay. But, I know for myself, I feel like sometimes I'm, uh, there's this setup in the way the instructions are given of like, oh, you're not supposed to think about anything. But it's why I really love Ajahn Amaro's definition of an unentangled participation with the breath, an unentangled participation with your emotions, an unentangled participation with the thoughts that are rising and passing through our minds. And it's just, like entangled is like, I am thinking, 
unentangled is like, oh, interesting. Look at what my mind is doing. And it's calling for compassion and it's calling for uh, forgiveness. And there's a, a, a participation that is a, a wise response to what's happening rather than being so tangled up in it that we incarnate as this story that my mind is telling or this sensation or I am breathing rather than the body's breathing all by itself. And there's an unentangled observation, reception, uh, experience of the breath that can lead to those insights. To follow up question, so like in, in meditation where, where you're talking about um, if something, like you're having anxiety or depression or pain about something, you say, you know, turn and face that. So then you're not concentrating on the breath, right? Then you're turning and facing. So different kind of meditation, you'd say. Still mindfulness, right? Mindfulness, uh, four foundations, you know, four foundations, you know, whatever's happening in the body, first foundation. And we use the breath as a kind of chosen object a lot of the time because it helps breath's always happening. You can't rely on, uh, there's always some sensations in the body, but like if your focus was your kneecap rather than your breath, it's like, oh God, that's kind of subtle. And sometimes it's really fucking painful and I can really pay attention to my kneecap. And sometimes there's not much, doesn't feel like there's much sensation, it's too neutral. But the breath is always coming and going and creating some sensation in the chest and nostrils. And so that's why we choose it. But whatever's happening in the body, including the emotions that we're feeling somatically in our bodies as an object of, of awareness, turn towards it. Where is that grief? How does it feel in my sternum, in my breast, and my where? Do, how far does my grief radiate from my heart? Where's the edge, right? Like when you have heartbreak, and you're feeling that like crushing pain. Okay, invent, turn towards it. Where is it crushing? Where's the edges of the crushing? And you know what's it doing to your armpits? And how is it in your elbows? How's your heartbreak in your elbows? You know, like. And, and really that body investigation, um, turning towards it. And, you know, second foundation is acknowledging pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Third foundation, what's happening in the mind and even heartbreak, right? Which is a mind state that is experienced in the, in the body. Um, investigating it, turn towards it. And, and that unentangled, oh, this is grief, this is sorrow, this is fear. I'm in the middle of anxiety. Anxiety is like this. Sweaty palms, <laughs> clenched jaw, shallow breathing, racing thoughts, being mindful of all of those factors that come together that we call anxiety. Loud mind, sweaty palms, <laughs> shallow breath, <laughs> catastrophizing, all of those things that the mind starts doing. And that not so subtle message that the mind loves to give us, which is like, it'll never end. <laughs> some, some form of, some form of I'm here forever, motherfucker. And then that, you know, extra like, oh shit, it's never gonna go away. Which the more we understand impermanence, the more insight we have into impermanence, even in those moments we're like, oh, okay, yes, this is, devastating in this present moment, but I, I know it's impermanent. I know it will arise and pass. The breath taught me that. Mindfulness taught me that.
it will come, it'll have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Good enough? Um, I think the hand there first, yeah. If you have questions at home, okay, I see some questions. I'll go back and forth. I'll do one more here and then. I had a metaphor right in my head that struggled to say present, listening to this all because it's so burning, but almost as if the, the mind was a musical score. Every measure has these four notes and these four beats, and every beat is a thought. And having a pause and nothing instead of that beat, that beat easier to hear and understand. And just having the space before and after gives us that space to, to digest it a little bit more. Even if we tell ourselves we're not supposed to have thoughts right now, just listening to that the space has a lot of value for us. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the unentanglement. We need those pauses in order to unentangle the identification with it. And, and, um, and you know, this whole thing about not supposed to think, it's not the Buddha's teaching. I know that there are Hindu teachings, there are forms of Buddhism that really encourage, um, you know, deep concentration states and but the, I just don't feel, it's not what the Buddha, the Buddha was saying, like, be with what is. And sometimes your mind will get real quiet and that's okay. Be with that, be with tranquility, be with serenity, be with emptiness of thought. But, you know, thought's not a problem. And use your mind. You train the monkey mind with the mind, right? That, I mean, this is the biggest dilemma is you're trying to train your mind with your mind. <laughs> and your mind will get real fucking tricky sometimes and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm meditating. <laughs> <laughs> totally doing it right now. And we can't really trust our minds. The untrained mind is trustworthy. But the more we meditate over the years, the more we develop that discernment of like, oh, this is a wise thought. This is just more distraction, more um, craving. Your reminds ever say to you, like, you're doing so good at this right now. You're not thinking about anything. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm the best meditator. I don't, I don't have any thoughts. I just sit here. And then it takes you a moment to realize, oh, shit, that, all of those are thoughts. That, all, that, whole, that whole narrative is thinking. <laughs> Please, I'm like, question Oh, wait, actually, let me pause you and go take one on. Okay, who was first? It looks like Declan online. Hi, um, I really like the artwork behind you. And I was curious if there was a Buddhist uh, message or story related to the art. Um, the online question is about the um, artwork. And so, yes, I'll reflect on it briefly, which is, um, you know, both of these, I would say, are like Indo-Tibetan inspired. They're done by a tattoo artist that lives in England, who's a Spanish guy, his name's John Dixon. But he's, he's very much um, inspired by uh, Buddhist art. And, you know, and, and this, this one on, on my right is Mahakala. And Mahakala is a Tibetan Buddhist deity that is actually an image of fierce compassion. And I think that this is important, right? Of like, when you look at the skulls and the monsters and you think, you know, whatever you think, 
cool or spooky or aggressive you know some people are like it's kind of aggressive it's kind of not very buddhist um but it's actually an image of uh that actually a fierce response is sometimes what's the most appropriate and that compassion and ferocity and a kind of they're, they're sometimes they're called the wrathful deities but uh, and and even in you know some of theirs they're holding skulls and but it's all images of cutting uh, the heads off of delusion, the sword, the of like sometimes our whole kind of going against the stream, rebelling. Uh, it takes effort. It's a radical thing that we're trying to do. Training your mind. You know, sitting in meditation isn't is like, oh, this is so easy. It's like this internal fucking battle with ignorance. And that's what these images are of like, you know, sometimes you're going to get real fierce with your own ignorance, with your own attachment, with your own aversion, with your own hatred. You got to, you know, really um, bring forgiveness, bring compassion, bring loving kindness, not in a just like waiting for it to happen, but as a battle with the causes of suffering. And so like, that's, that's kind of like, ah, I'm going to fucking, you know, I'm going to do it. <laughs> My fucking face is on fire. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, um, and then skulls are, you know, always, symbols of impermanence and death and the reality that everything's impermanent including these bodies and you know the skull as the sort of ultimate you know not alive anymore life is precious like do the work right fucking now because death is certain and the time of death is uncertain and um it's a wake-up call you know uh, and it's one of the core teachings of the buddha first foundation of mindfulness meditate on death So it's my own, you know, it's just also the kind of style that I like, but if it, there is a kind of way that it fits with, with Buddhism. Uh, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I started to teach at the Santa Monica Zen Center, which was um, 10th in Colorado. And it had been a Zen Center in the, um, was it Maizumi Roshi? No, uh, uh, I think Maizumi Roshi lineage. And for years, but the Zen master there, the guy that was running the place, was a little off. Uh, and by off, I mean Republican. And um, sorry to get bipartisan in here, but he was just a little bit off. And for a Buddhist, you know, like for what you expect when you like you're coming into. Uh, and he had like at the entrance when I, I showed up there. Well, first of all, I showed up and um, to meet with him the first time to be like, hey, I'm like the new kid in town. Can I teach a meditation class at your Zen center? And um, and somebody told me before I go in is like he hates Obama. It's like right around Obama. And I, so I came in wearing my Obama Hope T-shirt, <laughs> just like on purpose. Yeah, on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, all of that is separate. What, what I, actually the story was when I came in, he had this book of like war atrocities open at the begin at the uh, entrance to the um, Zen Center, and just like mangled bodies, like mass graves, just like open. Like you walk into the Zen Center to meditate, and it's just carnage. 
And I was like, I like this guy. <laughs> this guy's a fucking weirdo. And you know, just like people think I'm a fucking weirdo too. Um, and you know, whether it's the skulls or the carnage, I'm like, but there's actually this is part of the Buddha's teaching: face death, face the atrocities. Let's stop turning away with aversion from the reality of this world that we live in, that's filled with injustice and atrocities and death and ongoing ignorance. Um, so probably more than you were asking, <laughs> but a little some reflections on the etchings behind me. So this question, yeah, in the back here. Yeah, um, I don't know if it's a clearly, clearly important question, but given that things are impermanent and thoughts come and go, and I guess some of you're always recreating your identity in every moment by remembering and thinking about stuff, but everything is impermanent. Why is the mind so wet on on this on this narrative that is singular and permanent and and here? Could you hear it at home? Should I repeat it? Okay, so the question is, uh, given that like we all get it, like everything's impermanent, but why is our mind so out of whack, right? And wed to this narrative that like this is going to last forever. But also, isn't it mostly when it's unpleasant that your mind says that? Maybe sometimes, you know, maybe sometimes when things are really pleasant, your mind's like, this is going to last, like when you fall in love. <laughs> and the delusion comes in of like, this is going to be amazing forever. And you forget that, like, actually, like, we're just drunk on sex and love and you know, it's going to be good, but it's going to get different. And, you know, it's not going to be the same in a year and in five years. And, you know, you, sometimes some pleasant experiences feed the delusion of permanence. But I think that mostly it's our survival instinct. There's something in our, you know, neurobiology that's like pain, threat, like get away from this. It's just going to get worse. It's going to kill you. Ultimately, that sort of forever is like if you don't fight or flight or freeze, if you don't fucking run, you know, you're going to, this is going to last. And it's part of our just biological evolutionary kind of DNA in our mind of like, it's going to last. So do whatever you can to escape from it. Um, we're not born in any sort of harmony with the reality of impermanence. We're born into a mind body that gets attached. And I think, you know, I think that's the answer. Like, why? Why? why how, how come we haven't evolved yet <laughs> to the place of non-attachment and to the place of compassion for pain? Um, I'm not sure why we haven't or if actually our species would even continue if we did. It might be a survival imperative to be delusional about impermanence and to therefore get attached and aversive and fixated in you know impermanence. Uh, I'm not sure, but maybe uh, Wes Nisker, a Dharma teacher that I like, used to who's who's done a lot. He did a book called something like uh, Buddha's Nature, and looking at nature and looking at biological evolution as some of the answers to why we're like this. And 
he said, well, maybe, you know, if enough of us meditate for enough um, generations, enough, you know, kind of <laughs> hundreds of years, maybe children will start to be born mindful. You know, may, maybe there will be an evolution of mindfulness in the species if enough, you know, critical mass of people train their minds and enough children are born to people with trained minds, um, that, that it'll become more naturally. First of all, it seems unlikely because not that many people are really willing to meditate and really train our minds. It's too small of a percentage of the population that actually practice mindfulness for that to happen as an evolutionary process. But in that story, he said, maybe at some point our, you know, uh, our ancestors, not ancestors, what's it called in the future? Our descendants. Uh, we're descendants of them. We're there. I don't know. The people in the future. <laughs> What's the word? Successors? I don't know. Descendants in the future. Our descendants. So maybe at some point, our descendants, right? At some point, way, way off, people will be born mindful and mindfulness will just like be a thing. And that sort of like, I understand everything's impermanent. We'll just be like, duh, not like it is for us. Like for us, it's duh, but we don't live in harmony with it. It's like, I know everything's impermanent as I'm clinging as hard as I can to something that I know is impermanent. Um, is it maybe um, like, they'll look back on us of like back in, you know, the 21st century, people sat around with their legs crossed, trying to be mindful. And they'll look back on us of like, what, like Neander, like we look back on the like Neanderthals of like, fire, <laughs> I have a wheel, you know, or whatever, like I meditate, you know, like it's a big deal. Like it just, be, maybe it will become natural at some point for humans to not be so, attached and so aversive and so self-centered. But I think probably also some other species will just come along and kill all of us if we <laughs> stop being so nervous the way we've killed everyone else that isn't nervous enough. <laughs> well, he's... Is that your thought for the day? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Be nervous. Be nervous, it'll save your fucking life. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna ask too if like the idea of having to accept impermanence is also then we have to accept that our life is impermanent and therefore we're gonna die and it's all death, right? So yeah. even life, right? Even every day, like children are like, I ain't gonna die. I'm gonna get in this car and I'm gonna go drive and do whatever the fuck I want, right? And then as parents, we're like, oh my god, you know, because we're closer. Um so yeah, bad things and but it's just every day too right like every day we think oh we'll have tomorrow yeah yeah and so we don't we don't do whatever we don't live authentically in the now and whatever we sort of just putz you know we're spacing out and wasting time in our heads and all that right yeah well, unless you take the year of the lift class you know, yeah. you go nuts shivering up there the <laughs> if i only had this many days what would i do right now <laughs> yeah, my, I like what you're saying. 
but it's also everything that we're trying to do here is be more awake to the impermanent truth and the unreliable reality. Like we don't know if we're gonna make it home tonight um, and be fully present for all of it without it being, cause you know, we, like you're saying children or whomever, like we go through with this sort of denial of death. I'm like, I'm gonna make it home. And like, even I've told this story a lot of times but even our kind of common, um, greetings or not greetings, but farewells to each other. And I'm guilty of it. I'll, I'll say it to some of you tonight. See you soon. See you later. See you next week. And it's like, I have no fucking idea if I will ever see you again. It's a delusion to expect that I'll see you next week. Right. It's not fully present awareness of like one of us might die this week. That's the reality. So I might not ever, and I was um, having dinner with my teacher, John Amaro, a long time ago. I think this was like 25 years ago. Uh, I was fairly new in the practice. I'd done some retreats with him and was real awestruck by the monk and, and he knew it and wanted to give me a teaching. And um, actually we probably weren't having dinner. We were having lunch because he doesn't eat dinner. But um, I was saying goodbye to him and I was like, so, you know, reverence and so good to see you. And I can't, you know, I'll see you. I am coming to the retreat. I'll see you soon. Like, and uh, he said, stop it. <laughs> He's like, just say goodbye to me forever. <laughs> right. Cause that's what we're doing. Right. Like just say goodbye to forever. And maybe you'll see me again. Maybe it won't be forever, but just in case we don't ever see each other again, let go of this, you know, this idea that we're going to see each other again. And just like, let's be fully here for this moment together and goodbye forever. And I, I, ooh, I don't like it. <laughs> right? Oh, reality. It doesn't have to be, you know, with the also sort of like goodbye forever and hopefully not, but just in case. your day-to-day experience and how you engage with people and you treat or try to engage with people as though you might not see them again. I wonder how that would have changed all of our day-to-day. I think it depends on how kind you are. Like if you're really committed to kindness and to integrity, then th that could be a beautiful way. It doesn't always have to be kind. It just is real. Presence, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm just a little worried about my own, like, man, if I could really never see you again, I might not be as kind. I don't know. Like, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, like some loopholes. Like, of course, if you really understand karma and you really like, you're, you're not doing it for them, you're doing it for your own karma. But I feel like I might get myself into some trouble. Like if I was like, oh, I'll never have to see this person again. <laughs> Balance. Let me take one more online and then we'll come back to the room. Uh, Lee, go ahead, unmute yourself. Hey, hey, Bella, hey, Sangha. Um, Thanks for being here. It's always extremely helpful, especially right now. Um, I've been kind of had, had my faith like on fire recently, as you alluded to. And, um, and it's been, yeah, I've just kind of had a relapse in uh, 
lot of my commitments and ways. So it's been really hard and I've been trying to repair it, but it's like, seems like every time um, I'm watching myself get like love, finally having some softness or loving kindness and starting to really repair and recommit to, um, yeah, to, you know, just right speech and being honest and right action and not engaging in behaviors that are really sabotaging and harming myself and others and when I'm trying to go uh to on that repair it just seems like it's there's everything in me is like on fire and doesn't want um isn't allowing for the space of that decision or like of the and and meditating is always the answer for me but it's also like feels like okay but then I also have so much to do during the day like I can't just meditate all day but then I'm like I kind of feel like yeah it's probably a symptom of coming back to um all these new so you know being I was my question is not yeah I guess my question is not super eloquent but it did make me think of it might be about learning how to like um if you had any experience in in anything like this um with recommitting to some thing in a way that it, you keep on toppling off but also in just this like right thing or something because I feel like it's it happened things I'm getting just a lot of information input like a lot of stimulus and that's what kind of makes it hard for me to then uh stay with my commitments I lost one word you said write something that I didn't hear Oh, I was thinking if there's like right listening, because I feel like I'm struggling with what, even with the information I'm receiving in meditation, um, it's becoming kind of like diluted or it's becoming um, hard to access. And then when there's all this stimulus, I feel like I'm kind of getting into weird orientations that are not harmonious of that. So, yeah. couple reflections for you. One is um, I like that you uh, are aware that meditation, like you said, like meditation is it's the thing that works, but you can't meditate all day because you got to go to work and you got to uh, deal with life. And uh, you can't have a formal sort of sitting meditation practice all day, every day. Um, but uh, as you are saying, when you do it in the morning, when you do it before uh, it does inform our activities. And then a lot of it is, I don't know, Lee, if you have this yet, but having practices that are integrated mindfulness-based practices that aren't about sitting on the cushion. Um, I know for me, like one of the things that I do a lot in my daily is bring attention to my footsteps and uh, do walking meditation. I've done a lot of walking meditation. I find it to be a very beneficial thing. And it's something that when I'm out, even you know, when I was moving and doing all of the stuff and carrying the boxes, there's a way in which it's uh, a mindfulness practice because I'm paying attention to my body and especially to the footsteps that, you know, just like the breath becomes that sort of anchor uh, in meditation or breathing in and out. Footsteps also for me have become an anchor to the present left right, left, right, from doing it for so many years on retreats and then integrating it into, into life. Um, 
and whether you're doing mindfulness or you just start bringing like, uh, I didn't quite catch exactly. You said on fire, um, you know, my, my, my sense is that maybe a lot of loving kindness and that you don't have to sit uh, in meditation to do loving kindness. You can just say, start saying, may I be happy, may I be at ease, may I be free in whatever activity you're in, driving down the street, bringing the meta phrases, the loving kindness or the compassion or the forgiveness phrases, whatever's called for in that moment and just get it going in your mind uh, at work. Like nobody will know you're meditating, <laughs> you know, and just, you know, you don't have to sit there with your eyes closed and get super concentrated to just bring this meditative awareness to your footsteps or get these phrases going in your mind. May I be happy. May I be at ease. May I learn to tolerate this unpleasant experience that's happening and just uh, replacing the thoughts, replacing that, uh, you know, negative self-talk that's so um, common. Um, I hope those reflections are helpful. I don't know if I hit it on the the nail on the head or not. Good enough, Lee? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Welcome. Uh, there was a hand in the... Yeah, Jay, go ahead. Um, I mean, uh, Um, 
comment about um, from a student who's a long-term meditator, done a bunch of retreats, been at it for a while, and um, and this feeling of kind of like, uh, am I failing at my meditation because it doesn't feel as beneficial as it used to? It's not as um, I'm I'm kind of putting words, but um, that there's a feeling of plateau and. I talked a little bit. We did you hear what I said? La I think last week I talked a little bit about that sort of plateauing. That's a natural part of the process for us. Um, I had the thought. So I've got a couple of questions for you, but I had this thought of like, and you you kind of came to it at the end, uh, which is like actually maybe this is just what meditation is like now that I'm a meditator. In the beginning, meditation is so new and interesting and kind of like whoa, what the fuck is happening? I'm actually becoming aware of my own mind. This is amazing. And then at some point you're like, yeah, I'm aware of my own mind. It's not that interesting. You know, like it's just awareness of my own mind. And it's, it becomes like everything else, uh, we get normalized to it. So I'm wondering how much of it is just you're normalized to it. And, um, but the bigger question is, how much has your suffering decreased? Because it's not about your meditation. It's not about what's happening on the cushion per se, you know, as much as like how much attachment, how much aversion, how much har harm are we causing? How much, you know, how's our ethics, you know, how, how's our five precepts? How's our, how are we showing up in our relationships, our integrity? Are we becoming more kind? Are we becoming more, uh generous all of those things and you know the map i know you know the map and so i feel like that's the bigger question not how interesting is my meditation but is a med is my meditation a support for me being ethical and living with integrity and um, being less and less attached and more and more compassionate um we're not meditating to get good at meditation we're getting we're meditating to get skillful in our communication and our livelihood and our relationship to our thoughts and emotions. And uh, I, I know that you've had some big shifts in that area. And so I'm, you know, we can unpack this one on one later a little bit more. But sometimes what feels like a plateau is just kind of like, actually, I've sort of success rather than failure. Now it could be failure. I could be totally wrong and you might be doing it all wrong. <laughs> you might have gone way backwards. Like at one point I was like, I'm failing. And then I was like, no, I'm succeeding. And I'm like, okay, now I'm succeeding. And you look like, oh, I can say I'm succeeding. And neither one of those really, really matter. The only success and failure is how much am I suffering? Right. That's it. Let's. Yeah. That's it. Like really, of just kind of looking like how how much am I suffering? And of course, the answer is yeah. Okay, I'm still suffering some, but is my practice helping me not suffer so much? Even if it's fairly ordinary, even if it's fairly like, yeah, just breathing in, breathing out, thinking, remembering, planning. 
that that is huge i think that's huge i relate to that so much because you know how that like i'm suffering and then i'm suffering about suffering and then i'm suffering about suffering about suffering and the suffering is never going to end and there's just so many layers of it and maybe that's actually what some of our liberation is is like can you just like suffering's no big deal just get used to it. <laughs> just make friends with it. Just kind of don't suffer about suffering. Like shit, it has kind of it's a part of it. Now, ultimately, of course, Buddhism is saying, let's not suffer at all. Let's minimize it. Let's eradicate it. Let's get to the place where we're at ease with our pain without suffering about it. Trying to associate what he's talking about in Memphis review with that moment of doubt. You know, that you talk about, like, you've had a practice for a long time, and then you suddenly go, I don't know if this is doing me any good. Yeah. I've kind of plateaued, nothing's happening. You know, I mean, I just recently, last month, went through that 10 years of meditating, like, I don't think this is helping me at all. My family's like, yeah, right, you've got to be kidding, you're so much better. <laughs> yeah. but, but that feeling, I have that, what you're talking about, that feeling of plateau, like, what's going on, and you're not doing I mean, I, I'm, I have very much similar experience where my first few years, there was so many big changes happening and kind of and cathartic experiences and struggling with the practice and all of that that was happening in the early years. And then it's like, you know, after some years and decades, and it's kind of like, well, there's not a lot of big stuff happening here now. I just like do forgiveness and do loving kindness. And I still do it because my mind still hates people. So I still do forgiveness. And, you know, like, you know, like I still practice mind, you know, like you still keep doing the same shit, but it's not like so amazing like it was that, oh, wow, this actually, there's hope here. This shit actually works. It's alleviating suffering. Now it's just, it's the difference between learning something new and knowing how to do something. And when you know how to do something, it's cool. Like, wow, I've got these amazing tools and I can do this thing, but it's not exciting like it is to learn something new. And especially for us, like, I want to say addicts, but just humans that have like the kind of repetition, uh, kind of drive for novelty, that sort of like new shit is more fun than, than old shit. <laughs> and we bring that to our spiritual practice. You know, we bring that to our spiritual also, like, I want these big experiences rather than, I just want to be at peace. It doesn't have to be that interesting and that exciting and that novel. I just want to learn to be at ease in my own skin. And now that I'm at ease in my own skin, a little boring. <laughs> Go looking for trouble. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, 
on and and the you know the love addicts who get addicted to that intrigue and that kind of like i only i know just want to fall in love over and over and over and what else you know and people do that in spiritual practice too going from one tradition one guru one you know looking for the next best thing rather than like actually you're in a really good relationship stay in it you're in a really good relationship with your own mind. Stay in it. You know, you you found the Dharma. Stick with it. Right? You don't need to kind of. And then we have retreats, you know. And if you want it, you want intense experience, go on retreats, go on longer retreats, you know, go on a month-long retreat, go on a three-month-long retreat, go be a monk for a year. Like you, you know, like you want to kind of deepen. <laughs> yeah. You, we do have that, uh, you know, Sorry, kind of experience that that we can get, you know, within the dharmic adventure. I was talking to some guys earlier about Kerouac and like why Kerouac was so uh, inspiring um, as a sort of a, like making Buddhism exciting of like he's hitchhiking and he's meditating, he's going on retreats. And yes, we know what a misogynistic pig he was. We'll set that aside. That's also true. But like also like just inspiring that sort of like, wow, spiritual practice can be radical and adventurous. Like, I want that. I want to hitchhike as a meditation practice. I want to train hop. I want to go and live in the fucking fire lookout. Like that's fucking romantic all by myself. And some of that is seeking spiritual experience and some of that's just seeking intense novel experiences, entertainment. Okay, I'm going to leave it there for tonight. Class is done by donation. Um, if you're online, you can donate through the link to the website. If you're here, you can um, put money in the bowl or Venmo. I don't have the um, square reader hooked up tonight, but there's a 15 or $20 suggested donation. If you have cash, you can put it. If you'd want a Venmo, you can put it. Um, everybody's welcome to be here regardless of the ability to donate very intentional that we don't charge, that I don't charge for these classes. I want it to have everyone to have access regardless of finances. But we do have uh, expensive rent. Um, also part of the money comes to me as my livelihood. Please uh, support me, support against the stream. Your donations are uh, tax deductible. And thank you in advance for your generosity. The October retreat, I did end on that sort of retreat tone with Jay. Uh, October retreat is open for registration. I think most of the single rooms are sold out, but there are doubles and there's camping. Come, it's, it's October Joshua retreat. Not terrible to camp, to, to camp that time of year. Um, although I don't know, was that last year when we had that hail, a couple of years ago, we had that big hailstorm. Was that an October retreat or is that a summer? Oh, that was a May retreat. Yeah, you know, the desert weather is unpredictable sometimes. What, what's it like in October mostly out there? For camping outside, it's fine. So pretty cheap to camp, come on the seven-day retreat. Lots of cool camping in the desert at the retreat center. Um, so register, come to retreat. That's all I have. Many goodness that comes from our practice be shared with all beings and all realms of existence. May each one of us get as free as possible. 
and together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.